if you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. Welcome to Mindshot Holiday Edition. This is your host, Bruce McGuire. And Michael Powell. And we are bringing a special Christmas episode to all you guys out there today. The Christmas Conspiracy. (laughs) Is Christmas a conspiracy? As always, if you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. And make sure you subscribe to the channel. Click the bell for notifications. And you can check us out on social media, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Patreon. Just check the description. Okay. What do you think, Maxwell? Are you a longtime Christmas observer, Christmas fanatic, or are you the Grinch? (laughs) Um, uh, When I I was younger, I I liked Christmas. I looked forward to it. And there was a time period from high school to, like, for another decade, I was just like, I don't know. I, uh... I just got turned off by that whole thing because I, I became an atheist and like didn't see the idea behind Christmas. And every time people said Christmas to me, it was like, or like Merry Christmas. It just, I didn't respond to it because, uh, you know, it means it was related to Christ or something. And, and I wasn't believing in that. So, but now I'm cool. Like I say Merry Christmas to people. And I, I think, uh, I think it's a, I don't know, it's a good time of the year as far as like getting together with families, always with family, you know. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit on uh, the Thanksgiving podcast as well, on the Thanksgiving conspiracy. And if you guys haven't checked that out, you can go check out that podcast. It was pretty interesting. For the Christmas one, though, I mean, I was kind of sort of in the same boat as you for a certain period of time where I was kind of blasé about Christmas and have gone back and forth on it a little bit but you don't you don't opt for the holiday neutral greeting happy holidays like what if they celebrate Hanukkah or Kwanzaa you just go with the merry christmas right off the bat no no i go i go happy happy holidays but like if they're wearing a christmas suit and an elf suit or something like just tell them know. happy just tell them happy kwanzaa <laughs> what's that mean <laughs> you don't know what kwanzaa is yeah what is it <laughs> Maxwell Army. (laughs) Well, there's actually a Kwanzaa conspiracy as well. But uh, Kwanzaa is basically a holiday commemorating African heritage in African-American culture. It's observed from December 26th to January 1st. There is a feast and gift giving involved. And it's it's mostly an African heritage holiday. The African diaspora is basically all the countries where African natives had spread to either intentionally or by slavery or whatnot. And yes, you never heard of that? Yeah. Yeah, they always in school, there was always, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, like the trifecta of the season. Hmm. It's not exactly. a religious holiday because a lot of people who celebrate Kwanzaa also celebrate Christmas. It's sort of like a cultural holiday more so than a religious holiday, but there's also religious principles as well. There's candle lighting and all that stuff, but that's this podcast is specifically about Christmas. <laughs> so, so how did, how did Christmas start? It's Christmas. Chris, the origins of Christmas are similar to Halloween. It's a pagan holiday. Uh. 
There were actually quite a few holidays for winter solstice and the like, and we will explore the history. But let me set the stage here. Is Christmas satanic? <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> Santa Claus, Satan. <laughs> oh, man, there's, there's conspiracy theories abound surrounding Christmas time. So is paganism satanic? If Christmas was derived from paganism, is pagan satanic? Is paganism derived from the one true ancient religion of Atlantis and the golden age of man? <laughs> Lot of topics to explore. Or, conversely, was paganism hijacked by modern Christianity to appear satanic, to disguise the true roots that would actually benefit mankind, and the hijacking, the hijacked paganism is in fact satanic. So my position kind of on all of this is that the truth is somewhere, it's probably an amalgamation of all of these theories, which is why I never advocate for buying into any type of dogma, because the truth is open-ended and multifaceted. So on this episode, we'll be examining all of this. So, let us look into the origins of Christmas. So, this is an article on the true meaning of Christmas, Paganism, Sun Worship, and Commercialism by Vexen Crabtree, 2008. This is a very good article. Christmas is the celebration of the time when the days start to lengthen, which in the Northern Hemisphere is the middle of winter. Many religions in history have claimed the winter solstice as a holy day. The reason of the season is a combination of different traditions. It includes sun worship and pagan nature religions who have venerated the natural cycle for many thousands of years. Many traditional elements of Christmas predate Christianity. Nowadays, it is laid upon by various Christian stories, and Christians even say quite wrongly that they invented Christmas. In combination with these religious sources is a heavy dose of commercialism. Many traditions are in fact invented by commercial companies trying to find nifty ways of selling goods. Remember in our Thanksgiving podcast, it looked like the Thanksgiving uh a corporation, a turkey corporation, kind of wanted it to be the bird of the holiday or the meal of the holiday. So the Turkey Association kind of yeah. started the whole turkey thing. <laughs> yeah. So, and Christian is even more commercially viable. It's, you know, the economic high point of the fiscal year. Yeah. So a sensible and modern refrain is that Christmas is simply a secular midwinter holiday season. It is important to all families as one of the three holiday seasons in between children's school terms. Christmas is a multicultural festival with a long pagan history and can be celebrated by anyone. Pagan religions and sun worship, a general pagan history of Christmas. Many traditional elements of Christmas predate Christianity. In other words, Christmas was pagan before it was adopted and renamed by Christians. The Catholic Encyclopedia of 1908 states that Christmas was not among the earliest festivals of the church. 
Iranius and Tertullian omit it from their lists of feasts. Those authors lived into the 3rd century. The CE article concludes that when later Christians adopted the date of the 25th of December for Jesus' birth, the abundance of inaugulous midwinter festivals may indefinitely have helped the choice of the December date, the same instinct which set Natalis Invicti at the winter solstice will have sufficed apart from deliberate adaptation or curious calculation to set the Christian feast there too. Professor Hutton, a respected and careful primary sources historian, mentions Christmas in his valuable book on the modern history of paganism. It is absolutely correct that some British folk customs have descended directly from pagan rituals such as the giving of presents and decoration of homes with greenery at midwinter. This is from The Triumph of the Moon, A History of Modern Pagan Witchcraft by Ronald Hutton, 1999. Also interesting to note, the whole Christian domination of the world and the Roman Empire and all of these civilizations seeking to control others with religion, it's a little easier to assimilate the mass population's when you kind of disguise your own holiday unity or your unification of an empire under one religion, if you can kind of subvert their holidays into your umbrella religion, trying to control everybody with that holiday, it's more of a seamless transition. <laughs> Mujan Momen in the book, The Phenomenon of Religion, A Thematic Approach, 1999, says this, most Christmas customs are in fact based on old pagan festivals the roman saturnalia and the scandinavian and teutonic yule christians adopted these during the earliest period of church history the church however has given this recognition and incorporates it into the church year without too many misgivings only the more radical fundamentalist elements in some churches protest from time to time about the mixing of pagan elements into the religion and Hutton from 1996's The Stations of the Sun, A History of the Ritual Year in Britain, says this, The habit of a midwinter festivity has come by the dawn of history, and probably very long before, to seem a natural one to the British and not one to be eradicated by changes of political and religious fashion. It was general custom in pagan Europe to decorate spaces with greenery and flowers for festivals attested wherever records have survived. Sun worship and the reason for the season. Sun worship formed the basis of Mithraism, Zoroastrianism, and other Roman religions and many other pagan traditions. It is the reason sun Day is a holy day in many religions and why major festivals are held at spring and the solstices. The real meaning of Christmas is sun worship, a reminder to all life on earth that we owe everything to the sun. Sun worship is one of the main pillars of all religion, especially older religions. Sun worshipers and nature religions held major celebrations at the winter solstice, the victory of the strength of the sun over the forces of darkness that try to suppress it. Osiris Dionysus represented and was represented by the sun, as was Jesus, who's the church father Clement of Alexander calls the son of righteousness. Sun, sun, S-U-N, S-O-N, another coincidence, Maxwell? Maybe. 
<laughs> when old relics and religious symbols such as human faces are given a light backdrop of rays of light or a corolla, it means they represent the sun. Sir James Fraser says the largest pagan religious cult which fostered the celebration of December 25th as a holiday was the pagan sun worship Mithraism. The winter festival was called the Nativity of the Sun. Franz Cumont, perhaps the greatest scholar of Mithraism, wrote, quoting Minicius Felix, the Mithraists also observed Sun Day and kept sacred the 25th of December as the birthday of the sun. Many scholars have pointed out how the sun-worshipping Mithraists, the sun-worshipping Manicheans, and the Christians were all syncretized and reconciled when Constantine led the takeover by Christianity. Did you know any of this, Maxwell? No, not at all, but... Mithraism is actually a pretty big staple of the occult. We'll definitely do a dedicated episode on that. And I actually have my own theory on certain Jesus cycles, which I will also go over in a dedicated podcast. However, other sun-worshipping groups were included too because of the generic importance and popularity of Sol Invictus, the invincible sun deity. Mario Righetti, a renowned Catholic liturgist, writes, The Church of Rome, to facilitate the acceptance of the faith by the pagan masses, found it convenient to institute the 25th of December as the Feast of the Temporal Birth of Christ, to divert them from the pagan feast celebrated on the same day in honor of the invincible son, Mithras. The mixing of pagan sun worship and Christianity is exemplified by the testimony of a Syrian scholiast on Bar Salibi, who says, It was a custom of the heathen to celebrate on the same 25th of December the birthday of the sun, at which they kindled lights in token of festivity. In these solemnities and festivals, the Christians also took part. Practically all the known sun deities were born on December 25th. In S.E. Titcomb Aryan Sun Myths, The Origin of Religions, we find it cited, quoted from primary sources, that the following sun deities were all born on December 25th, according to their legends. Krishna, Vishnu, Mithra, Mithras, Osiris, Horus, Hercules, Dionysus, Bacchus, Tammuz, Indra, and Buddha. Therein, we also read of the Scandinavian goddess Frigga, in whose honor a Mother Night festival was held at the winter solstice, as well as a similar great feast of Yule, where a boar was offered at the winter solstice in honor of Frey. Hutton highlights the role that the celebration of light has had through all the threads of history that combined to become part of the symbols. Of modern Christmas. Again, in Hutton's book, The Stations of the Sun, A History of the Ritual Year in Britain, 1996, he says this, what the Scots did emphasize in common with many of the English was light. In 1725, Henry Bourne, a Newcastle clergyman, commented that many people in the north of England lit huge Christmas candles on Christmas Eve. The Scots and the Irish were also fond of them. 
Yule candles were also common in Scandinavia, a region which had strong contacts with those parts of Britain which maintained them. It must also be clear that many Christian customs, as we heard from Mujan Momen and Professor Hutton, very ancient, but they have in present centuries have been combined with the very modern phenomenon of commercialism. Pagan sun worshippers divided the sky into 12 zodiacs. There's also 12 months. Christianity's 12 apostles are also 12. With their solar halos, the celebration of Christmas on the winter solstice and their making of sun day into the holy day. So this is kind of a usurping of pagans' sun, 12 zodiac sun worship to Christianity's 12 apostles. Another coincidence, Maxwell? Not really sure. <laughs> when in doubt, call it a coincidence. Is that your MO? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> All right, let's look at the date of the 25th. Christmas Day, by other names, was the ancient feast day of the sun in the depths of winter, predating Christianity. But the exact date of the winter solstice changes slowly over time. So although the solstice moved progressively from January 6th to December 25th, some traditions continue to celebrate it on the familiar night. Today it falls around December 22nd. The Roman religion of Mithraism, which existed for hundreds of years before Christians started celebrating Christmas, holds that the birth of Mithras was on the 25th of December. In another coincidence, the birth of Mithras was also said to have been witnessed by three shepherds. Is that another coincidence, Maxwell? Uh, maybe. I'm, I'm getting confused with all these mythical figures. Well, we're just talking about Jesus and Mithras right now. Nothing to confuse, right? Just these two. Oh, all right. <laughs> Okay, let's look at the commercial takeover of Christmas. The most skeptical view of modern Christmas is that the fads, decorations, festive goods, and all the paraphernalia are a commercial scam to make us spend money on overpriced, useless goods. However true this is, it has also become a secular social festival much akin to the American Thanksgiving. Families come together at Christmas even if they do not for the rest of the year. It probably helps that Christmas and New Year's celebrations have become institutionally intertwined. These make Christmas, in essence, a meaningful family celebration, even if on top of that there is a thick cover of shallow commercialism. The festivals are largely led by commerce and retail outlets. The relevant decorations, cards, food, and goods are all marketed for Christmas. And it is the high streets that press Christmas upon the populace way before the populace itself is ready. It is a frequent complaint that stores start Christmas too early and too aggressively. Several elements of Christmas are the invention purely of commercial advertisements. The origin of Christmas cards. Take the example of the commercial invention of the Christmas card with corporate effort that these would have remained an expensive privilege of the rich. Once again, we go to the Stations of the Sun, A History of the Ritual Year in Britain by Ronald Hutton, 1996. The Christmas card represents a convenient and sophisticated evolution of the ancient custom of giving blessings or good wishes for the new year. By 1840, it was often carried on among the wealthier classes 
by sending a short poem engraved with an ornamental framework. This and some imitations proved to be commercial failures because they were too expensive. In 1862, therefore, a fresh start was made by the stationers Messrs. Charles Goodall, which printed cheap, plain greetings. By the end of the decade, they were becoming decorated, and other firms were producing them. In 1878, the volume sent was sufficient for the post office to commence a separate record of Christmas mail, and in the 1890s, the cards became a popular craze and continued to expand their market over the next century. In 1992, over one and a half million were sent, and the commercial value of the Christmas card trade was over 250 million pounds. Father Christmas, Santa Claus, the personification of Christmas. The human figurehead of the festive season is a modern creation. Before the 17th century, such a figure has no history. Well, that's actually not true. We will be getting into the origin of Santa Claus. But in this article, they quote once again Ronald Hutton in The Stations of the Sun. Nobody seems to have thought of personifying Christmas until the early 17th century. It was done then partly because of the general taste of the age for allegory and partly because the criticism of observation of the feast by radical Protestants made a reputation of it convenient to writers determined to defend it. Thus, in 1616, Ben Jonson introduced to the world Christmas, his mask, presented a figure in a round hose, long stockings, a closed doublet, a high-crowned hat with a brooch, a long, thin beard, a truncheon, little ruffs, white shoes, his scarves, and garters tied cross. Over the next 250 years, this sort of character was to feature repeatedly in pictures, stage plays, and folk drama known variously as Sir Christmas, Lord Christmas, or increasingly as Father Christmas. He was essentially concerned with the adult world, personifying feasting and games. He had no connection with presents, and he was not treated with much respect, being generally a burlesque figure of fun. Then Santa Claus turned up. In origins, he was, of course, the medieval patron of children, St. Nicholas, who remained a favorite popular figure among the Dutch. The figure gradually moved from St. Nicholas Eve to Christmas Eve. In 1809, Washington Irving, whose sentimental interest in traditional Christmases has been mentioned, drew attention to the old tradition in his Knickerbocker's History of New York, rescheduling it from St. Nicholas's Eve to Christmas Eve. Irving's portrait was repeated in an 1821 issue of The Children's Friend, published in the same city, and that may have been the direct inspiration to another New Yorker, Clement Clark Moore, to create the modern Santa. His saint was not the traditional sentimental figure of the Dutch, but a magical spirit of the northern midwinter. He wore fur clothes, had a bushy white beard, traveled through the sky merrily in a sleigh drawn by reindeer, and came down chimneys with a sack of gifts. Soon after 1863, he was so frequently depicted wearing a red suit trimmed with white from 1931, Haddon Sunbloom, the illustrator of Coca-Cola, drew a series of Santa images in their Christmas advertisements until 1964, which is where the tradition of a Santa Claus wearing red comes from. The colors red and green 
had always been prominent in Christmas card greetings, however. So I'm sure you remember all those commercials, the Coca-Cola commercials with Santa Claus, right? I don't remember the Santa Claus, but I, no, I don't remember. <laughs> wow, really? Man, Maxwell's starting to slip even for Maxwell. <laughs> but, yeah, when I was a kid, that's one of my earliest, some of my earliest memories of watching TV are seeing those. Oh, wait, wait, now, now I remember, like, he drinks Coke and the Santa Claus drinks a Coke. Well, yeah, there's a whole bunch of different commercials, but Coca-Cola prominently featured Santa Claus on their cans during Christmas or bottles. And that was a lot of the commercialism of Christmas stems from Coca-Cola's Santa Claus commercials and advertisements. Yeah, so when we get into the depths of this conspiracy of commercialism and Satanism and whether or not that's true or not, but it's kind of weird how mind control works. And we'll, we'll have to do a dedicated podcast on television itself, why it was created, how it's used and advertising and all of those really bizarre things. But it really does get into your mind. Like some of my earliest memories are watching those Christmas Coca-Cola Christmas commercials. And then you got the, the Christmas jingles in the background and it's kind of, it kind of becomes ingrained in your mind. Unless you're Maxwell Powers, it's difficult to forget. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I don't, I, I didn't know what, what year was the, um, what years were the, um, uh, the Coca-Cola commercials to 1969, you said? Well, Haddon Sunbloom was the illustrator, so he drew Santa Claus, all of the Santa Claus advertisements from 31 until 64. The commercials, they make Santa Claus Coca-Cola commercials right now. They never stopped. Actually, let's, let's go through, now's as good as time as any, let's go through the Santa Claus Coca-Cola connection. So this is right from CocaColaCompany.com. Five things you never knew about Santa Claus and Coca-Cola. The Santa Claus we all know and love, that big, jolly man in a red suit with a white beard, didn't always look that way. In fact, many people are surprised to learn that prior to 1931, Santa was depicted as everything from a tall, gaunt man to a spooky-looking elf. He had donned a bishop's robe and a Norse huntsman's animal skin. In fact, when Civil War cartoonist Thomas Nast drew Santa Claus for Harper's Weekly in 1862, Santa was a small elf-like figure who supported the Union. <laughs> Getting that propaganda in there. Nast continued to draw Santa for 30 years, changing the color of his coat from tan to the red he's known for today. Here are a few things you may not have realized about the cheerful guy in the red suit. One, Santa has been featured in Coke ads since the 1920s. The Coca-Cola company began its Christmas advertising in the 1920s with shopping-related ads in magazines like the Saturday Evening Post. The first Santa ads used a strict-looking clause in the vein of Thomas Nast. In 1930, artist Fred Meisen painted a department store Santa in a crowd drinking a bottle of Coke. The ad featured the world's largest soda fountain, which was located in the department store famous bar company in St. Louis, Missouri. Meisen's painting was used in print ads that Christmas season, appearing in the Saturday Evening Post in December 1930. Two, Coca-Cola helped shape the image of Santa. In 1931, the company began placing Coca-Cola ads in popular magazines. Archie Lee, the Darcy Advertising Agency executive working 
with the Coca-Cola company, wanted the campaign to show a wholesome Santa who was both realistic and symbolic. So Coca-Cola commissioned Michigan-born illustrator Haddon Sunblom to develop advertising images using Santa Claus, showing Santa himself, not a man dressed as Santa. For inspiration, Sunblom turned to Clement Clark Moore's 1822 poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, commonly called Twas the Night Before Christmas. Moore's description of St. Nick led to an image of a warm, friendly, pleasantly plump and human Santa. And even though it's often said that Santa wears a red coat because red is the color of Coca-Cola, Santa appeared in a red coat before Sunblum painted him. Also, red is the color of Satan. Is it not, Maxwell? <laughs> I didn't know that. You didn't know that red was the color of Satan? Nope. I don't know anything about Satan, really. You don't know that hell is hot and there's red fire and when any well, kind that, of... Well, that, that, but I didn't know like he wore, he wore red. Like, I didn't know he had clothes on and shit. Well, I thought it was just a devil uh, horn. Well, it's called a red. It's a red devil. So, regard even if it's just like a humanoid type figure, it's a red figure. Whether there's whether it's just a generic red stick figure with horns, you never you never saw Satan depicted with horns. He's always got like red skin. Yeah, I've seen it on TV where he had horns. Yeah, but he's red. He's not like he's not like green or blue. Oh yeah, yeah, he's red. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maxwell Army. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Sunblum Santa debuted in 1931 in Coke ads in the Saturday Evening Post and appeared regularly in that magazine as well as in Ladies Home Journal. Is that your favorite magazine, Maxwell? <laughs> um, one of them. <laughs> National Wait. Geographic. And the New Yorker and others from 1930. What? Nothing. From 1931 to 1964, Coca-Cola advertising showed Santa delivering toys and playing with them, pausing to read a letter and enjoy a Coke, visiting with the children who stayed up to greet him, and raiding the refrigerators at a number of homes. The original oil paintings Sunblom created were adapted for Coca-Cola advertising in magazines and on-store displays, billboards, posters, calendars, and plush dolls. Many of those items today are popular collectibles. Sunblom created his final version of Santa Claus in 1964, but for several decades to follow, Coca-Cola advertising featured images of Santa based on Sunblom's original works. These paintings are some of the most prized pieces in art collection in the company's archives department and have been on exhibit around the world in famous locales including the Louvre in Paris, the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, the Isaton department store in Tokyo, and the NK department store in Stockholm. Many of the original paintings can be seen on display at the World of Coca-Cola in Atlanta, Georgia. Three, the new Santa was based on a salesman. In the beginning, Sunblom painted the image of Santa using a live model, his friend Lou Prentice, a retired salesman. When Prentice passed away, Sunblom used himself as a model, painting while looking into a mirror. Finally, he began relying on photographs to create the image of St. Nick. People loved the Coca-Cola Santa images and paid such close attention to them that when anything changed, they sent letters to the Coca-Cola company. One year, Santa's large belt was backwards. 
Perhaps because Sunblom was painting via a mirror. <laughs> Another year, Santa Claus appeared without a wedding ring, causing fans to write, what happened to Mrs. Claus? <laughs> oh man, that's funny. The children who appear with Santa in Sunblom's paintings were based on Sunblom's neighbors, two little girls. So he changed one to a boy in his paintings. The dog in Sunblom's 1964 Santa Claus painting was actually a gray poodle belonging to the neighborhood florist. But Sunblom wanted the dog to stand out in the holiday scene, so he painted the animal with black fur. Four, Santa Claus got a new friend in 1942. In 1942, Coca-Cola introduced Sprite Boy a character who appeared with Santa Claus and Coca-Cola advertising throughout the 1940s and 50s. Sprite Boy, who was also created by Sunblom, got his name due to the fact that he was a sprite or an elf. It wasn't until the 1960s that Coca-Cola introduced the popular beverage Sprite. Five, Santa becomes animated in 2001. In 2001, the artwork from Sunblom's 1963 painting was the basis for an animated TV commercial starring the Coca-Cola Santa. The ad was created by Academy Award-winning animator Alexander Petrov. Commercial Christmas. Prominent elements of Christmas are commercial inventions, from Father Christmas and his suit to Christmas cards. The history of commercialist Christmas is older still than those creations. From 1870s onwards, the Times broadsheet could be relied to attack the commercialism of Christmas. Clearly, its commercialization has not destroyed it, and since the 19th century, it has become even more popular than ever. To remove the commercial aspects of Christmas would be largely to destroy it. Religious activists would create in its place a series of historically challenged myths and break it into a sectarian event. Without commercialism, the general populace, Protestant Christians, secularists, and evangelical Christians would all cease to have anything in common during the festive season. Christianity versus Christmas. Christmas was always largely secular. During the nature reveration, pagan festivals and sun worship that formed the basis of the Christmas period, Christians sometimes complain that the original Christian message is ignored. At Christmas, such modern Christians do not know its history. Christian churches have themselves led long and bitter campaigns against the observance of Christmas and in various times and places banned it completely. The religious content was always very small, with most celebrations and rituals being secular, i.e. organized by the people, not by clerics. Major elements of Christmas are simply commercial inventions based on themes of nature, such as Christmas cards. Once again, drawing from the Stations of the Sun by Ronald Hutton, from the beginning, the proportion of religious themes in Christmas card designs was small. Examples from before 1890, of which the Jonathan King collection has 163,000, show an overwhelming concentration upon the natural world and upon jollity. The choice of imagery has remained more or less constant ever since, an evocation of survival, rejoicing, and the resilience of nature usually constructed around the literally vivacious colors of red and green. Modern-day Christmas frequently contains modern Christian elements. Not least of all, in English, the word Christmas is the one we are all familiar with, more so than Yule or Winter Solstice. Nativity stories are taken from the Christmas tradition, even though the ideas of shepherds, wise men, and the like were all originally pagan. The stories are now told with Christian overtones at Christmas. 
Early Christians celebrated Christmas in April and May. Christians of the first few centuries did not know for certain where Jesus was born, where he died, or where he was buried. This fact is bemoaned by early Christian leaders. When they did celebrate Christmas, they generally did so in April and May. Quote, Pope Julius I in the 4th century commanded a committee of bishops to establish the date of nativity of Jesus. December 25th, the day of Sol Invictus, the invincible sun, was decided upon. Not coincidentally, this is the day when the pagan world celebrated the birth of their sun gods. Egyptian Osiris, Greek Apollo and Bacchus, Chaldean Adonis, Persian Mithra, when the zodiacal sign of Virgo the sun is born of a virgin, rose on the horizon. Thus, the ancient festival of the winter solstice, the pagan festival of the birth of the sun, came to be adopted by the Christian church as the nativity of Jesus and was called Christmas. End quote. The reason that the Christians annexed the winter solstice and chose to celebrate Christmas in December instead of spring was that influential Roman religions celebrated the birth of the son of the sun on the winter solstice, and the first Christian emperor fused paganism and early Christianity to create the Pauline Christianity that we know today. Mostly derived from pagan myths, Jesus' birth stories are very dubious, and it is very likely that all such beliefs were written retrospectively by the Roman gospel writers or were assumed from the outset. There is no evidence or reason to believe that they actually occurred. Anti-Christmas Christians. The rhetoric that Christians have used against the celebration of Christmas predates Christianity and originated with Jewish Moors against the celebration of birthdays plus their wish to avoid pagan practices. In the book of Jeremiah, 7th century BCE, it warns Jews and Christians not to learn the ways of the pagans who bring trees into their homes and decorate them with silver and gold. From Jeremiah 10, 2-4, This is what the Lord says, Do not learn the ways of the nations, or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. Isn't that interesting, Maxwell? Maxwell, did you have a Christmas tree? Um. Yeah, uh, every year. Yeah. What do you think of this pagan ritual? Um, I, I missed the details, but it's it's interesting. How'd you miss it? I just said it. Um, uh, what'd you say? It's nothing about a Christmas tree, right? Or nothing about a tree, right? <laughs> Everything I just said was about tree. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I I found I found it interesting that the Christians themselves rejected the the celebration of Christmas in the beginning. And then they, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, let's look at the uh, Christmas tree paganism. This is actually from Newsweek. Christmas trees are widely associated with the Christian holiday, but their origins are far from the Christ-worshipping standards they represent today. Evergreens, plants that stay green year-round, have been celebrated in many cultures for hundreds of years. But Americans were not always accepting of the tradition. Christmas trees did begin as a pagan tradition as early as the 4th century CE. 
European pagans were largely responsible for dressing their homes with the branches of evergreen fir trees in order to bring color and light into their dull winters. But pagans weren't the only people to do this. Romans also used the branches for decorations during the Festival of Saturnalia, which took place from December 17th to December 23rd in honor of the god Saturn. Many theories actually translate Saturn to Satan. Saturn, Satan. <laughs> because of their pagan roots, American settlers were not quick to jump on the Christmas tree trend. German settlers were the first to introduce the indoor evergreen to the new country, but it didn't go over smoothly. The newly settled Puritans were big supporters of Christmas and wildly opposed the pagan influence. Early government officials, including William Bradford and Oliver Cromwell, tried to destroy new Christmas traditions of decorating, dismissing them as heathen and pagan mockery. In 1659, the General Court of Massachusetts even made a law that celebrating Christmas was illegal. <laughs> the only thing allowed was church attendance. No decorations, especially trees, should be seen. Isn't that kind of contrary to like the religious freedom vibe of the New World? Huh. Yeah, it's just a shame. That's kind of weird. It's crazy. It was illegal. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of weird because these Christians or people of various uh, religions are coming to the New World for religious freedom. That was one of the primary reasons cited through many historical texts, whether that's true or not true. I mean, that's the general reason is religious freedom and freedom for persecution. And now they're making Christmas illegal. They're making decorating trees illegal. That's not even... It's not like we're talking like human or, or animal sacrifice. It's just that weird. So how did Americans evolve into Christmas tree fanatics? There's no clear answer, but a few theories stand. One claims an evergreen was chopped down in anger in the 8th century CE by English Benedictine monk Boniface when he saw an evergreen being used in a pagan ritual. This version claims that the trees fall as a pagan symbol turned it into a declaration of Christianity. The tree was then seen as a triangular symbol of the Holy Trinity. I think they're referring to pyramid there, but whatever. Whether or not that's the real reason for the spark of religious interest in evergreens, the German community began to accept both trees and formal Christmas decorations in the 17th century. It wasn't until the mid-19th century Americans found acceptance for the once pagan symbol in the Christmas holiday. Now, many argue the Christmas tree has even lost its roots in Christianity, much like it has lost its roots in pagan celebration. The Christmas holiday has evolved to include other religions and retail celebrations. So, any thoughts on Christmas trees in general? Are you going to continue to have a Christmas tree? Well, I mean, I don't have a Christmas tree, but, like, my brother has a Christmas tree, my sister has a Christmas tree, and I just go to their places. So. What about your ex-wife? Does she have a Christmas tree? Usually. <laughs> okay. The first Christians were Jewish converts, such as the Nazarenes and the Ibionites. Such early Christians and Jews did not celebrate birthdays because they considered it a pagan practice. There are no Christian birthday celebrations in the Bible. It was related, said early Christians, to pagan representation of sun cycles. For these reasons, biblical fundamentalists do not celebrate birthdays, including Christmas. One such group is the Jehovah's Witnesses. From the Jehovah's Witnesses 
what does the Bible really teach? Published 2005. There is no evidence that the first century disciples of Jesus observed such a holiday. Even if Jesus' disciples had known the exact date of his birth, they would not have celebrated it. The only birthday observances mentioned in the Bible are those of two rulers who did not worship. Jehovah, Genesis 40.20 and Mark 6.21, those who want to please God do not celebrate it or any other holiday that has its roots in pagan worship. The suspicion of birthdays and the fact that there are no written first-hand records of Jesus or his life mean that it has long been impossible to work out when he was born. Modern Christian fundamentalists and evangelicals tell Christians not to celebrate Christmas. Three and a half centuries ago, the English Puritans used their influence within the Cromwellian Republic, the Protectorate, to ban Christmas celebrations. They asserted, quite correctly by their own lights, that the December 25th had no biblical connection with the birth of their Messiah and that the Christmas festival was therefore essentially pagan. The Scottish reformers of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, for example, claimed that the Papists, the Catholics, had invented all the rites of Christmas, so they abolished the lot of them. A literary debate broke out in December 1643 and was to continue intermittently until 1656. Despite a few desperate efforts upon both sides to find some scriptural indication of the true date of Christ's birth, a common ground was established almost at once. That, as there was indeed no objective evidence of when Christ was born, the Feast of the Nativity was wholly a creation of later authorities and supported by tradition and not the Bible. Once again, from Ronald Hutton, Stations of the Sun, A History of the Ritual Year in Britain. From the Dark Side of Christian History by Helen Ellerby, 1995. In 1647, the English Parliament ordered that Christmas, along with other pagan holidays, should cease to be observed. A 1652 Parliamentary Act repealed the ban on Christmas. In New England, where celebrating Christmas was considered a criminal offense and remained forbidden until the second half of the 19th century, as late as 1870 in Boston, students who failed to attend public schools on Christmas were punished by public dismissal. <laughs> so if you just want to get kicked out of school, you, all you got to do is not show up on Christmas. So I, I guess you are not allowed to be sick on Christmas because if you miss, if you miss school on Christmas, you're, you're getting expelled. What do you think about that? Max? <laughs> That's interesting. So you better not get sick. It doesn't matter if you have tuberculosis. Like, you better be going to school or you're getting expelled. <laughs> <laughs> Christians nowadays who proclaim that we should remember the reason for the season are ignorant of their own religion and of the history of paganism. So let's move on to Winterval, the UK controversy invented by cheap newspapers such as the Daily Mail. <laughs> Some low-brow newspaper outlets pushed the idea for many years that the political correctness gone mad idea of Winterval was officialdom's replacement for Christmas. The sensationalist idea was that because Christmas had the word Christ in it, then modern secular governments and councils could not support it. 
So the types of newspapers that peddle anti-foreigner positions took up the story with gusto. The Guardian blogger Kevin Ascott reported that the Daily Mail repeated the myth the most between 1998 and 2011 a total of 44 times. The Times and the Sunday Times together repeated it 40 times. The Sun 31 times, the Express 26 times, and the Daily Telegraph 22 times. The Guardian even mentioned it a few times, however. It also ran several articles debunking the myth, and in 2011, the Daily Mail eventually faced its critics and admitted that it was wrong. From the National Secular Society Newsline, November 11th, 2011. Huh, that's weird. That'd be on 11-11-11. After years of perpetuating the Winterval myth, the Daily Mail corrections and clarifications column this week admitted it was all made up. It said, we stated in an article on September 26th that Christmas has been renamed in various places Winterval. <laughs> Winterval was the collective name for a season of public events, both religious and secular, which took place in Birmingham in 1997 and 1998. We are happy to make clear that Winterval did not rename or replace Christmas. The true source of the story is that one event promoter who combined several winter events, including Christmas, into one Winterval event in order to simplify marketing. From The Guardian, the myth was not just repeated either, it was also gradually distorted to become ever more removed from the original misconception. What started as a myth that one council had rebranded or renamed Christmas became a pluralized open-ended narrative that councils and authorities were rebranding or renaming Christmas as Winterball. It then mutated from a simple rebranding to a calculated attack on Christianity by atheists, Muslims, or the PC Brigade, who feared offending other faiths or ethnic minorities. In one extreme example, the South Wales Echo claimed that Winterval was the result of virulent attacks on religion by atheists, which had led to new rules such as Christmas being renamed as Winterval. In all, at least 15 articles directly claim that Christmas was renamed Winterval because of a fear of offending other faiths. At least a further 10 articles directly claim that Winterval was used to avoid offending ethnic minorities. So now, thanks to perhaps one repetition too far, the Daily Mail has finally admitted that Winterval is a media fiction. But what impact will those few lines of correction have compared with the huge body of journalism that has been repeating it so long as fact? And more important, will Melanie Phillips offer her own apology for repeating the myths? When I first heard the story, I thought ridiculous and didn't believe it was true. I spent a few minutes researching it and found out that I was right to doubt. Therefore, my worldview was not distorted. Journalists broadcast their opinion to others, and it is downright criminal that failures in basic fact-checking can be so endemic amongst them. So I guess the point that the author here is trying to make is that there is a lot of misinformation out there regarding everything. And now that we are so far removed from all of these events, it's kind of hard to know anything for sure. I mean, one of the unofficial Mindshock mottos is the only thing we know for sure is that we don't know anything for sure. Right, Maxwell? Yep, you got it. <laughs> so the conclusion here is that Christmas is a multicultural, multi-religious festival. It combines sun worship, polytheism, pagan nature religions who have venerated the natural cycle for many thousands of years, Christianity and other myths and traditions. When Christians complain it is too pagan, or when lay folk complain it is too religious, or when both groups complain it is too commercial, then they are all in need of realizing that Christmas is a commercial fusion of diverse nature-based festivals. The date of the 25th accords with sun worship thousands of years old. The Christmas tree and some of the decorations are pagan. Even the nativity stories are originally pagan, Mithraistic, Roman, and Christian. 
The main outstanding issue in the West is the Christian assertion that Christmas has something to do with the Christian figure of Christ or his birthday. These elements should be disclaimed. Firstly, the paganism inherent in Christmas, such as decorating trees, is warned against in the Bible, Jeremiah 10, 2-4. Second, there are no Christian birthday celebrations in the Bible. Thirdly, early Christians celebrated Christ's birthday in April or May. It was only changed to match with the 25th of December, a major pagan holiday, by Emperor Constantine in order to harmonize Christianity with paganism. It is certain that Christians should not attempt to celebrate Jesus' birthday, and they certainly shouldn't do so at Christmas. In addition to its rich history, Christmas has now become largely a secular holiday, a social festival based on the family and a commercial enterprise. Critics largely concentrate on the portions of Christmas they don't like and claim that those portions ruin the rest of it. As long as no one tries to capture the flag and exclude others, then there need be no modern conflict over the nature of Christmas. The non-religious can celebrate the commercial and social event. Christians can pretend Christmas has nothing to do with Christ. Pagans can celebrate nature and all can be happy. There are even alternate and well-known names for Christmas, such as Yuletide, which can be used according to taste. Whether or not one chooses to celebrate Christmas is mostly a matter of mood. So that is the article by Vexen Crabtree, The True Meaning of Christmas, Paganism, Sun Worship, and Commercialism. I actually kind of like that conclusion. He's kind of saying, you know, a Christmas for everybody. Yeah, I like that. And although there is that criticism of he's basically stating that the Jesus should be removed from it because it's not his birthday and that can't be verified and celebrating the birthday of Jesus not only – is it going to kind of piss off the non-religious people, but it's not really accurate to the religious people either. So he's, I guess he's kind of arguing here that that aspect should be removed, but the celebration, the festival, all the happiness that can all retain. <laughs> so you're in agree, you're in agreeance with Vexen Crabtree here. Um, I like the way he's thinking. I mean, he's not, he's just, I don't know. He's, it's not like, he's not stopping anybody from anything. So yeah, it was a, it was a pretty good article. I'm going to do another one. It's just really, but it's really interesting how these holidays, I mean, they turn out okay. I mean, if you, if, if both Thanksgiving and Christmas, like, never had all this, like, this weird history, that <laughs> is just the way it is. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of cool. <laughs> so here's another article. It's a little bit more aggressive. Uh, it's on wearyourvoicemag.com. Christmas isn't Christian. The Pagan Roots of the Winter Holiday by Laurel Digman. December 2nd, 2016. People are super sensitive when it comes to Christmas, and that's understandable. Much of the world has been taught that the holiday marks the birth of the Christian Savior, Jesus Christ, but that's simply wrong. Jesus wasn't white, and he damn sure wasn't a Capricorn. <laughs> Historical evidence suggests that Jesus the person was born in the springtime, but that Christian missionaries adopted Yule celebrations in order to appease and convert pagans who were deeply spiritually attached to their own holidays. So it kind of goes like this, like, oh, you pagans should become Christian. See, we celebrate on the 25th, too. It's almost the same thing. Like, how, how would that work? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, it would be, yeah, it'd be kind of interesting to see. I guess they were going for the long con game. 
Early Christians were also fascinated by the rural rustic pagan traditions. Christians of that period are quite interested in paganism, says Philip Shaw, a researcher of early Germanic languages and Old English at Leicester University. It's obviously something they think is a bad thing, but it's also something they think is worth remembering. It's what their ancestors did. The two most notable Pagan winter holidays were Germanic Yule and Roman Saturnalia. Christian missionaries gave these holidays a makeover, and they are now known to us as Christmas. So Saturnalia was a lawless, drunken time in Rome where literally anything was okay. This was the original purge in which laws were suspended for a brief stretch of time. What do you think about that, Maxwell? People just going out in the streets, drinking and killing each other? That's not good. Well, if Saturn is Satan, that would be a pretty fair and honest tribute to Satan, the Lord of Darkness, would it not? Yes. Saturn, the Roman god of agriculture, liberation, and time, and parties, was celebrated at what is perhaps the most famous of the Roman festivals, the Saturnalia. It was a time of feasting, Role reversals, free speech, gift giving, and revelry. Read gender bending sex, drinking, telling people off, trading gifts, and doing whatever you want. That's kind of interesting that the whole gender flip flopping man is a woman, woman is a man has its origins in Saturnalia. And if Saturn is Satan, does it all make sense, Maxwell? Uh, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> or is it all coincidence? After solstice, the darkest night of the year, the renewal of light and the coming of the new year was celebrated in the later Roman Empire at the Dies Natalis of Sol Invictus, the birthday of the unconquerable sun on December 25th. Okay, so let's move on to Yule, Germanic Yule. Scholars have connected the Germanic and Scandinavian celebration to the Wild Hunt, the god Odin, and the pagan Anglo-Saxon Modronit. Yuletide was traditionally celebrated during the period from mid-November to mid-January. Nordic countries use Yule to describe their own Christmas with its religious rites, but also for the holidays of this season. Present-day customs such as the Yule log, the Yule goat, the Yule boar, Yule singing, and others stem from the original pagan Yule, but are used in Christmas celebrations now, especially within Europe. As leaders were baptized and converted, they shifted their traditional celebrations covertly as to not upset the chieftains. That's a pretty good explanation. If the people wanted to convert to Christianity, they could kind of still hide under some of the umbrella traditions of the pagan holidays. Yule was traditionally celebrated three days after midwinter, but shifted to reflect Christian dates. Modern Wiccans and other neo-pagan religions often celebrate Yule as well. In most modern forms of Wicca, it's celebrated at winter solstice as the rebirth of the great horned hunter god who is viewed as the newborn solstice sun. Some celebrate with their covens, well, others celebrate at home. Do you celebrate with your coven, or do you celebrate alone? Um, well, I don't know. I just go over to my brother's place and my sister's place, and we just exchange gifts. So the great horned hunter god, also some associate that image with Satan and Saturn. Magical gift givers. Everybody's got someone like Santa Claus. He's primarily based on St. Nicholas, a 4th century 
Lycian Bishop from modern-day Turkey. Old Nicky wasn't a bad guy. One story says that he met a kind, impoverished man who had three daughters. Saint Nick presented all three of them with dowries so that they weren't forced into a life of prostitution, as dowries were expected to pay off families to take on their daughters. Sinterklaas is the Dutch figure, and Odin is the Norse god that Santa resembles. It wasn't just Santa or men who did the gift-giving in those myths. There's also the legend of La Befana, a kind Italian woman who leaves treats for children on the good list, and the Germanic Frau Holly, who treats women during solstice. Fruitcake. While people rarely show any excitement around the fruit-laden cakes these days, there were a real treat in times of yore. The cakes actually have origins in Egypt and were later disseminated by the Romans as they conquered parts of Europe. Those cakes of Egypt were just about as dense and long-lasting as the brandied fruit-studded cakes of today. Egyptians placed cakes of fermented fruit and honey on the tombs of their deceased loved ones so that they'd have something to munch on in the afterworld. Romans took similar cakes into battle made of mashed pomegranates and barley. Christians went into the Crusades with honey cakes. Fruitcakes are everywhere, no matter how hard you try to avoid them. Caroling. Caroling actually began as the Germanic and Norse traditions of wassailing. Wassailers were sent from home to home, drunk off their asses, singing to their neighbors and celebrating their good health. Well, except for the hangovers. The traditional wassail beverage was a hot mulled cider spiked with alcohol or fermented. Mistletoe. Mistletoe was considered a magic plant in Europe, especially among the Druids and Vikings, and holds significance in Native American cultures. Mistletoe is no modern quirk of Christmas. Even Romans partook in fertility rituals beneath the mistletoe. Not everyone took it that far. Mistletoe stood as a neutral ground for feuding Norse tribes who laid down their weapons in order to negotiate between the sexy peace plant. <laughs> the Druids thought it could protect them from thunder and lightning as well. Whether you've got the urge to make out, hide from the storm, or talk it out, beware. Mistletoe is super poisonous. The plastic variety is a great substitute, or make it out of paper or fabric to keep your furry and or small loved ones safe. What's your position on mistletoe, Maxwell? Um, I wouldn't eat it. <laughs> Why not? I don't know, it's dead. they said it's poisonous. <laughs> wreaths. Romans loved wreaths and decorated everything with laurel. Holly, ivy, and evergreen are the more popular modern options today. And each one holds significance. Egyptians didn't have evergreens, so they used palm fronds to celebrate winter solstice. Christians love holly because the red berries symbolize the blood of Christ, and the pointy leaves symbolize the crown of thorns. However, the advent of holly decor was around long before Christianity. Pre-Christian pagan groups believed that the holly king did battle with the oak king. They also thought holly could drive off evil spirits. Romans, of course, were into laurel wreaths, but laurel was not easily procured throughout the northern reaches of the empire. Instead of laurel, they used 
evergreens. This Christmas, no matter what your beliefs are, smile knowing that it has come from a long line of traditions much older than we have typically been told. Traditions that celebrate bounty, survival, and unwinding. Just make sure you end up on the nice list unless naughty is your thing. Naughty's your thing, right, Maxwell? <laughs> of course. <laughs> naughty is nice. I saw this girl wear that shirt. Naughty is nice. What does that mean? I don't know. It says naughty is nice. <laughs> huh? Like a like a like a like a sexualized naughty is nice. <laughs> it's weird. You know how you know how uh uh you know that song you're just making a list if you're naughty or nice or some shit like that. Uh, not really. Uh, how does it go? Um, he's making a list. Uh, I forgot how to. <laughs> I forgot how the Santa song. I think goes. I'd be more. I think I'd be more shocked if you remembered it. <laughs> well, no, no, it goes up because Santa makes a fucking list of all these kids who are who have been naughty and nice. And if you're nice, you get a gift. If you're naughty, like you don't get shit. So, <laughs> so this girl was wearing uh this shirt. Naughty is nice, which is like, huh. weird. Like. Yeah. <laughs> It was weird. Maybe she just wants to get her Christmas presents. Oh my god! <laughs> even if, even if she's not good, like most spoiled kids these days. You think how many parents you think put coal in their kids' stockings when they're naughty, or do you think they just give them presents anyway? I think most kids are so spoiled these days that they're gonna get their presents no matter what, and they know it, so they don't have to behave. What's your take on that? Uh, I don't know. But by the way, um, did did you uh? I remember, like, growing up with Santa Claus. I think I believed there's Santa Claus to, like, six or seven or something like that. And it, I don't know. It was just kind of weird. Um, it was kind of fun, though, like, <laughs> believing in Santa Claus for, like, that. <laughs> uh, you still believe in the Tooth Fairy? Um, speaking, speaking of that, speaking of that, like, my tooth is falling out. <laughs> are you going to get a dollar when it falls out? Are you going to leave it under your pillow? I'm gonna put it under a pillow and see what happens. <laughs> no, I, don't, I never believed in the tooth fairy, but like I think I believed in Santa Claus for like a year or two because I someone told me about about it when I was five or maybe I was four. I don't know. And then I <laughs> I just stopped believing on it in, at it like in it until like five and a half or something. I forget. Cause some other kid told me like, "Yo, Santa Claus is not real." <laughs> That's funny. Wait, what, right. what do you think about what do, What do you think about that? By the way, like um, like telling kids. You know, it's about Santa Claus. Parents tell their kids about Santa Claus and it's all a lie. What was your point with that? Yeah, well, I was just curious. Like, um, well, I, I mean, I, I, that shouldn't be done. But I don't know, a lot of, possibly a lot of parents or like are still, actually it's not that popular enough right now. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they still do it. Like tell their kids that they're Santa Claus and you should go to bed. And, Why would you? you know, put put up put up cookies and milk on the table so Santa could come down the chimney and put gifts under the tree. Why would you think? Why would you think it's not that popular? It's probably more popular now than ever before. Oh, I don't know because I I don't talk to kids about Christmas. I don't know. So why would you think it wasn't that popular if you don't know? I don't know. It was just my assumption. Not an assumption, but it was just a guess. Like it's like because uh, I don't hear about it. I don't know. Maybe it's just. Because I'm not a kid anymore, and I don't talk to five-year-old friends that believe in Santa Claus. By the way, I had a cousin that believed in Santa Claus. So, like, these were sisters, and they were, uh, they believed in Santa Claus till they were, like, 12. I'm like, what the? Actually, I've met adults who were on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> 
you how did they respond were well they, they were just like they're like yeah i mean i'm pretty sure santa's not real but there's like a chance that he could be i mean i guess i guess it's possible i mean i don't know like that's what the stuff they said but um, oh so, like, they were like, I guess ninety percent no ten. I mean, not really on the fence, yeah, like fifty yeah, fifty. Yeah, it was like yeah, you know ninety percent, ten percent. Yeah, you know what's weird? Like, I feel kind of I. I'm always in a dilemma. Like, like if I come across that, like let's say like you come across like a ten year old or an eleven year old, like and they and they kind of believe in Santa, and then like you know it's not your kid. Like, how do you? What do you think about? Like, how do you think this kid is gonna know? Is it more embarrassing? Wait, well, check this out. Is it more embarrassing for that kid to learn from school where when everybody makes fun of him that Santa Claus is not real? Or is it, I don't know, man. Like, I think it's a parent's responsibility. I mean, I don't know. They gotta, it's gotta, when do you tell them? Well, what if the, par- what if the parents aren't 100% sure whether Santa's real or not? <laughs> but, I, I mean, I can only imagine, like, my, my cousins who, um, I mean, who, someone must have made fun of them, like when they were twelve, thirteen. You know, I yeah, I can't believe you believe Santa Claus. Santa Claus isn't real. And then they they learned that when they were like six or seven, like they learned out of it. So like, I don't know, man. It's just it's just I don't I don't know. I don't think. Uh, well, as part Santa's, of the- I think Santa's a bad idea. I think you just stick to the tree, the 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 star and the ornaments. And gift giving and family. And... Oh, the the tree that we just discussed is sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah the most you want evil everybody. One, the most, yeah, yeah, the most evil one. You give yourself to Satan, and and <laughs> gift give. That's it. We're good to go. <laughs> so p- some people speculate that part of the conspiracy of telling lies to children so that they will believe those in authority that are lying to them, including their own parents hypocritically because the parents will say it's really bad to lie you shouldn't lie and then they lie to them <laughs> under the disguise of oh it's for the greater good is this setting up an entire generation as has been done many times for government indoctrination under the servitude of satan the father of lies <laughs> i mean that's another thing we didn't really we didn't really discuss is like satan is all about evil and lying so if Santa Claus is a lie, like what's the representation there? <laughs> For some reason, I'm, this just came into my head. Like, is it if you were like a, a six-year-old kid or a five-year-old kid, whatever? Um, would you rather your dad tell you that Santa Claus isn't real, or would you rather catch him dressed <laughs> dress as Santa Claus or something, or put, <laughs> or put <laughs> gifts under the tree, like? <laughs> Yeah, I must have been I must have been a really weird kid because with a lot of stuff, I didn't really believe or disbelieve. I'm like, okay, they're saying this giant fat man flies around. Yeah, I, it's like even yeah. when I was like five, even when I was about five, and I didn't know if it was true or not. I yeah. did, I didn't automatic. I don't remember thinking. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if I actually really believe like a a human around with a deer. In a sleigh, like I, and I didn't. It didn't well, as make far sense as like, to me. as far as I can remember, I I just didn't know, so I didn't believe or disbelieve. All I knew yeah. is that the presents were real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't really know how they got there. I'm like, because even my parent, my parents must have said weird stuff because they. I think I remember hearing, maybe not from my parents, but I remember hearing Santa might not come himself. He has people working for him. That oh, yeah, the yeah, presents. Do you remember that, hearing? I've heard, heard that before. That? Yeah. Yeah, so 
it was kind of weird. Like they did a lot to confuse the issue. <laughs> So I think I remember thinking, are, are, is Santa sending workers to people's houses? Do they just walk in? Do like they drive a car and they like walk in and leave a present? Like it was kind of weird. You know what I mean? Like I don't know if he was flying around in the sleigh or not. You know, you know, I, you know what's weird? Because um, um, in okay, like, like uh, you know, when I was like little, like I didn't see a lot of chimneys in my neighborhood. So it just didn't make sense to – I don't know. It just didn't make sense the Santa uh, myth or the Santa story. I mean, well, none of it made sense. And I remember thinking about. I remember even considering Santa's motivations. I was kind of like, why is he getting all these gifts that might be expensive? Like, why is he getting all these gifts and just yeah. randomly giving? Yeah, them and, and, and like yeah. And where does he get the money or that kind of thing? Like, I don't know. It was just it was just weird. I don't think I really thought of it that in depth like i just thought like i just thought there was a sub santa that walks around at, at festivals and and gives away you know a couple of gifts and you you know kind of sit by him and get your picture taken or whatever it's kind of weird when you look at it at the big picture it's just promoting materialism like you go to i want this i want this physical object and this physical yeah. object will bring me happiness and then you're kind of bribed yeah. well you have to behave and then you get it's like all of it's kind of like indoctrination subservience yeah. training yeah like, i hated that i hated that whole uh you have to behave uh yeah you know if you're good i fucking hated that shit i don't know if i ever really followed that i don't know well i mean i was always a good kid why, why the fuck do i have to you definitely to didn't good? follow you definitely didn't follow pay attention maxwell like listen max <laughs> you definitely didn't follow any of that <laughs> oh dude if i if I well, I never got any gifts, so maybe it was. Uh, <laughs> maybe it was based on that. If you, oh, that's... you know, if you paid attention, you'll get a lot of gifts. But all right, so this article mentioned the legend of La Befana, which actually isn't known. I don't think it's too popular. I'm going to go over it real quick. In Italy, the legend of La Befana is popularly told around the time of the Epiphany. What does a Catholic holiday have to do with modern paganism? Well, La Befana happens to be a witch. According to folklore, on the night before the Feast of Epiphany in early January, Befana flies around on her broom delivering gifts. Much like Santa Claus, she leaves candy, fruit, or small gifts in the stockings of children who are well-behaved throughout the year. On the other hand, if a child is naughty, he or she can expect to find a lump of coal. Left behind by La Befana. La Befana's broom is for more than just practical transportation. She also will tidy up a messy house and sweep the floors before she departs for her next stop. This is probably a good thing since La Befana gets a bit sooty from coming down chimneys and it's only polite to clean up after oneself. She may wrap up her visit by indulging in the glass of wine or a plate of food left by parents as thanks. Some of the stories of La Befana involve a woman who is searching but unable to find the newborn infant Jesus. In some Christian legends, it is said that Befana had been visited by the three magi, or wise men, on their way to visit the baby Jesus. It's said that they asked her for directions, 
but Befana wasn't sure how to find the newborn infant. However, being a good housekeeper, she invited them to spend the night in her tidy little home. When the Magi left the next morning, they invited Befana to join them in their quest. Befana declined, saying that she had too much housework to do. But later changed her mind. <laughs> she tried to find the wise men and the new baby, but was unable to now. She flies around in her broom, delivering gifts to children. Perhaps she is still searching for the infant Jesus. Other stories depict Labifana as a woman whose children have died in a great plague. And she follows the wise men to Bethlehem. Before leaving her house, she packs up some simple gifts, a doll that belonged to one of her children, and a robe soon from her own wedding dress. These plain gifts are all she has to give to the infant Jesus, but she is unable to locate him. Today, she flies around delivering gifts to other children in hopes of finding him. Betsy Woodruff at Slate describes yet another version of the story in which King Herod's soldiers kill her son. Delusional with grief, she leaves her home to search for him. Instead, she finds baby Jesus and gives him all her son's belongings. He blesses her, and now she travels the world blessing good children and punishing bad ones. Some scholars believe that the story of Labafana actually has pre-Christian origins. The tradition of leaving or exchanging gifts may relate to an early Roman custom that takes place in midwinter around the time of Saturnalia. Bifana may also represent the passing of the old year with the image of an old woman to be replaced by a new year. Today, many Italians, including those who follow the practice of Shregharia, celebrate a festival in La Bifana's honor. What do you think about that? Have you ever heard of the uh, La Bifana myth of the witch flying around on a broomstick, going down chimneys and delivering gifts or coals? No, I never heard about that, but I heard about the witch, the witch and the, like, Halloween stuff. <laughs> Wait, what? You heard I never about, heard of... You heard about heard witches? About... You know what a witch in general is, but you've never heard of La Bifana. Yeah. Okay, got it. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Is, it, is that a popular thing? It's not that popular. That's why I went over it. Oh, okay. So let's get into the Santa Claus conspiracy. But first, let's differentiate between Sinterklaas and Santa Claus. Sinterklaas and Santa... Wait, there, there's three types? There's two. There's Sinterklaas okay. and Santa Claus. Okay. So the Sinterklaas and Santa Claus stories are well known and date back to the 4th century bishop Nicholas of Myra, now Demir, in southern Turkey. Legends of his generosity and kindness spread over Europe, and he became the patron saint of many groups, cities, and even countries. December 5th was the eve of his death and was commemorated with an annual feast in many European countries. Following the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, some countries merged the St. Nicholas celebration with Christmas, but others stuck to December 5th. The characteristic features of benevolence and the exchange of gifts obviously hark back to legends around St. Nicholas. Local folklore was added, which resulted in different flavors for the celebrations in various countries. Dutch settlers 
in the New World celebrated St. Nicholas's Eve in the 17th century, and those celebrations evolved through contacts with immigrants of other nationalities. Concerning the transformation to Santa Claus, the importance of the author Washington Irving in 1809 and the 1823 poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, commonly known as The Night Before Christmas, is well documented, as are the drawings of Thomas Nast in the 1860s and the Coca-Cola advertisements in 1930s. The Dutch Sinterklaas, together with his helpers, is believed to distribute his presents on the evening of December 5th. He may also pay visits during the evenings and nights before the 5th of December, sometimes leaving candy in shoes set before the fireplace. But the main event is the evening of the 5th. Once delivered, the presents are unwrapped during that same evening. So that's pretty interesting. So Sinterklaas is the Dutch version, and Sint arrives amid great fanfare in mid-November before spending a couple of weeks parading around superciliously and tantalizing children with candy. So Sint is thought to be the incarnation of Saint Nicholas, who has been revered since the Middle Ages. Santa Claus is kind of a mix of Sinterklaas, Father Christmas, and Saint Nicholas. The appearance of Sinterklaas is more religious. He's, he has a red papal gown and a white bishop's alb and a red mitre emblazoned with a cross. His golden crossier with curl detail is inspired by the pastoral staff carried by high-ranking church prelates. Sinterklaas charters a boat from Spain and then rides an elegant white-gray horse called Amerigo when on Dutch soil. Santa Claus, conversely, travels by sleigh with nine flying reindeer. <laughs> those reindeer must be in shape to be able to get Santa Claus from all those places because Santa's pretty big, right? <laughs> how, much yeah. do you, how much do you think Santa Claus weighs? Uh, 300 pounds, maybe. He kind of looks bigger than that. Uh, well, I, would, I would guess closer to 400. <laughs> yeah. Those reindeers must, must be jacked. So, Sinterklaas apparently keeps track of well-behaved children in a large book. Now, check out how dark this is. Naughty children are supposedly snatched in their sleep, stuffed into sacks, and disappear. Is this some kind of, like, weird ancient human trafficking operation? <laughs> I mean, that's dark. Sinterklaas doesn't, doesn't leave coal. He just takes bad children away like the boogeyman wow i guess uh, i guess parents used it as a, a tactic to keep them well behaved some of the legends say the child is carried away and turned into a cookie uh in parts of france saint nicholas is accompanied by a cannibalistic child killer called Père futard or the whipping father he flogs children who have been naughty and dispenses lumps of coal leaving saint nick to bestow gifts to the good in village parades at this time of year, sinister Père Futards grabs children and whisk them away. <laughs> That's dark. That's some crazy dark shit, man. In parts of Austria, 
when St. Nicholas makes a house call, he's accompanied by a demon named Krampus. While St. Nick rewards good children, Krampus beats the bad ones. Wearing fierce-looking masks, horns, and animal skins, he overturns tables, sets fire, grabs adults and children to spank them while St. Nicholas watches from the sidelines. Krampus is also a film. In Central European folklore, Krampus is a horned anthropomorphic figure described as a half-goat, half-demon during the Christmas season who punishes children who have misbehaved. <laughs> oh, man, that's dark. So this is most, Krampus is mostly known in Austria and German-speaking Alpine region. He is a devilish figure who portrays Satan. December 5th is Krampusnacht, when Krampus reigns. In the real world, people might attend Krampus balls or young men from the local Krampus group might don carved wooden masks, cowbells, chains, and elaborate costumes to run through the town of Krampusloff. Krampus run. Frightening and sometimes beating bystanders. According to legend, Krampus will spend the night visiting each house. He might leave bundles of sticks for bad children, or he might hit them with the sticks instead. He might toss them into a sack or basket on his back and then throw it in a stream, or he might straight up take them to hell. The next day is Nikolstag, St. Nicholas's Day, the same Nicholas whose Dutch name Sinterklaas evolved into Santa Claus. In other words, it's time for presents for all the little girls and boys, that is, the ones who haven't already been beaten, damned, or drowned. Krampus may be a monster, but he pals around with Santa. Originally, Krampus was a purely pagan creation said to be the son of hell from Norse mythology, but he got grafted onto Christian tradition as sidekick of St. Nicholas, similar to figures like Zwarte Piet in the Netherlands and Nech Reprucht in Germany. Since the 17th century, the two have been linked in a sort of Christmassy yin-yang, with Krampus as St. Nick's dark companion. St. Nick brings the gifts, and Krampus brings the pain. <laughs> They sound like a pro wrestling tag team. <laughs> <laughs> Krampus revelers will hit, push, and whip spectators at their parades. That's pretty funny. Here's a description from a tourist. The narrow streets in the old city section of Salzburg were packed with pedestrians as the Krampusay stomped through. Many people were caught unaware and reacted with terror. Some would flee and try to seek refuge in a shop or restaurant, only to be pursued by a determined Krampus. With so many easy targets, we managed to escape largely unharmed. At times, we were chased, jostled, and struck, but compared with the brutality we witnessed, it was obvious we had been spared the full brunt of what Krampus could muster. The writer went to Camp Sloths in three cities and described savage beatings to people's thighs and shins, as well as a Krampus chasing down and sitting on a teenager. But despite the fear and bruises, it's all in good fun, and hey, at least they aim for the legs. That's pretty fun. That's pretty funny. Can you see that catching on in, like, America? <laughs> everybody, everybody would be sued and in prison. Huh. Here's another thing that's really weird. The appearance of Krampus varies, but he often has one human foot and one cloven hoof. Half man, half devil. Yeah, that's weird. Krampus has also been a fixture on Austrian holiday greeting cards since the 1800s, where he's shown pursuing women or menacing children. Hmm. 
Some Austrian households had year-round decor meant to remind kids to stay good or Krampus would get them. In 1958, article about the Krampus legend in Styria, a state in southeast Austria, reports that Krampus would deliver gold-painted bundles of birch sticks to children, small versions of the bundle of twigs he would use to beat people. The families would hang the birch twigs on the wall for the rest of the year as decoration and to remind kids to stay in line. The article rather primly notes that the twigs are hung particularly in those houses where the behavior of the children merits the application of corporal correction. <laughs> Have you heard be child beating <laughs> description be used as corporal correction? It's <laughs> crazy. Between 1934 and 1938, when Austria was under fascist rule, Krampus was seen as a symbol of sin, anti-Christian ideals, and social democrats. <laughs> Sinterklaas, Sin, Santa, Sinta. A lot of these names are very similar. The newspaper of the Austrian Catholic Union called for a Krampus boycott, and the government of Lienz, the capital of East Tyrol, forbade Krampus dances and further mandated that all aspiring St. Nicholas's must be licensed by the city. They also pledged to arrest Krampus whenever they saw him. Though it didn't rise to the level of a ban, in 1953, the head of Vienna's kindergarten system also published a pamphlet calling Krampus an evil man and, where, and warning parents that celebrating him could scar their children for life. That's pretty funny, right? I don't know about funny, but it's kind of messed up. All right, are you ready to jump into the Satan-Santa conspiracy? Sure, let's do it. So... Are you ready, Maxwell? Is Santa Claus Satan's cause? <laughs> okay. The modern-day Santa Claus is an American version of St. Nicholas, a 4th-century Roman Catholic bishop from Asia Minor who was noted for his good deeds and gift-giving. The tradition first spread throughout Europe and then found its way to America by the early Dutch settlers. However, God's Word warns us to beware of tradition. Colossians 2.8. We shouldn't be surprised to find the devil right in the middle of the world's most celebrated holiday. Lucifer's desire has always been to dethrone God and exalt himself. Isaiah 14.12-15. He desires worship. Luke 4.7. And Thessalonians 2.2-3-4. Two, so also in a lot of these conspiracy theories, Satan always comes in the name of good. So is Santa Claus good? Is Satan pretending to be good to spread his influence? So here are some of the arguments for Santa being Satan. Well, first of all, uh, Santa is an acronym for Satan. And in a lot of these Illuminati conspiracy theories, acronyms and symbology are critical. And there's actually quite a few studies in psychology that shows that the effect of the brain the letters don't have to be in order for the brain to process information. And I'm sure you've even seen those things online. Can you read this? Where it's a whole bunch. It's like a paragraph and it looks like nothing. And yeah, yeah, I sent you one. <laughs> I didn't <even> remember. <laughs> yeah, there's this whole paragraph where... Uh, so I mean, is, the there, is there some kind of satanic conspiracy where Satan and demons can leech off your energy by you paying homage to them or giving them your energy because when you're praising Santa or you're loving Santa, you're actually loving Satan because even though the letters are in different order, your subconscious mind 
still partakes in this satanic worship. Any thoughts on that, Maxwell? That's very interesting. That's a uh, real possibility. So a couple other things. Is Santa pretending to be Jesus as part of this ruse or scam to siphon worship? So is Santa eternal? Has Santa always existed? Santa's basically immortal, right? He's always a fat old guy. Like, it's not like he just started one day, and it's not like he's going to stop one day. He's portrayed as eternal, right? Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) It's not like we're not going to have Santa Claus in 100 years from now. That's interesting. And let's look at Revelations 1.8. Jesus Christ is eternal. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is eternal. Santa is eternal. Santa Claus hails from the north, the North Pole, a place above the world, as in the realm of heaven. (laughs) And the Heavenly Father is, of course, in heaven. Does Jesus watch over all of us from heaven? So here's where it gets a little tricky, too. So even though red is the devil's color, Jesus Christ also supposedly is associated with the color red from Revelations 19.13, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. I don't know, he's depicted as wearing white, but I don't know, that one might be a little bit of a stretch. So this one's also a stretch. Santa has white hair. Jesus Christ also has white hair. <laughs> Revelations 1.14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire. Here's a general one. So Jesus Christ ascended, and he gave gifts unto men. Ephesians 4, 7 through 8, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And then, of course, Santa Claus flies around in his sleigh giving gifts. (laughs) So here's another one kind of strange. Santa is coming soon. So during the Christmas season, it's emphasized many times. Santa is coming. Santa is coming. Well, Revelations 22.20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. And when Jesus will come again, be resurrected, well, he was resurrected, came again, and and the return of the Messiah will be eminent as well. So another one that is very, very interesting is Santa knows whether you're naughty or nice, right? He's omniscient. How does he know this information? He just knows the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. That's uh, Proverbs 15, 3. Then we have Matthew 9, 4. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? Another connected one to that is that Santa is everywhere, kind of like God. So he, he visits billions of homes within 24 hours. So how many thousands of homes is that per second? <laughs> Maxwell, have you done, Maxwell, have you done Ru- the Rudolph, Santa Claus? Rudolph was flying fast. What? Have, have you done the Santa Claus math? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, hey, but, Rudolph, Rudolph uh, flies at the speed of sound. I mean, at the speed of light. That still wouldn't be fast enough. Really? 
guess not. <laughs> well, not just like a blink. Like you blink and he's delivered your shit. Well, not to mention how strong is is Santa and his magic reindeer to be able to carry billions of gifts of various sizes? Or does he return to the North Pole to refuel and like to, to restock the gifts? Because like how or does he have a infinite uh, sack where he has all of the gifts? It's like a bottomless pit where he could just pull out endless gifts. I think he duplicates himself like to each individual. So he just duplicates to a billion Santas and then just does it in one second. In either case, Matthew twenty eight eighteen says, "All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth." So Santa is all powerful that he is able to do this. He has God like powers. Are you supposed to be worshiping and celebrating Santa Claus, or is all worship reserved for only the Most High? Once again, this is not a podcast about the existence of God or Santa Claus. It is a podcast of ideologies. The religious people who are giving their energy to Santa Claus, their praise and love, should that only be reserved to the Most High in their religion? Or in any religion, actually, this is beyond religion. If we're talking about an archon demonic conspiracy that, in, that is leeching off the energy of your thoughts, even if you're not religious and you celebrate Christmas, if this conspiracy is true... Are you a pawn, an unwitting pawn in this game of satanic worship? Let's get into the Webster definition of an elf. Do you know how an elf is defined? Yeah, how is the elf defined? As a spirit or a nightmare, a ghost, a hag, or a witch. Damn. So Santa has all these elves helping him. Are these demonic entities that are assisting Satan himself masquerading as Santa Claus? Yeah, so weird. The conspiracy runs deep, Maxwell. I'll stick with the Christmas tree and the fucking gifts, and, I, and I'm good. Santa could go, you know, in his little sleigh and, and with Rudolph and fly away somewhere else. Elves are also defined as preternatural beings with magical powers that are mischievous in human affairs. So Christmas is very, very occult, is it not? Very occult-like. Occult-like, yeah. So let's look at the word Christmas itself. Christ and Mass. So Mass is celebrated at midnight on the eve of December 25th. Mass is defined as a public celebration of the Eucharist in Roman Catholic Church and some Protestant churches. Christ originated from the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed. And Christmas is shortened with the word as X-mass, right? Yeah, I've seen that before. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of Christians get offended if, uh, if you write that on a Christmas card or something. X-mass, like they think it's like, I don't know, satanic or some shit. And I will explain why. But in certain occult teachings, X represents the X chromosome, which was supposedly artificially inserted into our DNA by alien gods using genetic engineering. We're going Anunnaki in the Christmas conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we're going that deep. <laughs> we're going crazy. The 22nd letter of the Greek alphabet is actually Chi, which the X represents. 
and it means Christ. And of course, this is before Jesus Christ, that all of these definitions are what they are. X is also represents sexual activity, so sex, S-E-X, and then movies rated X, so you're putting X mass on, like, you know, <laughs> abbreviation. In Latin, mass means manly, viral, brave, noble, masculine, or the male sex. And in the Roman holiday, Saturnalia, of course, sex was celebrated as well. Now, that does sound kind of satanic. Roman courts were closed. Roman citizens were allowed to do anything because it was a period of lawlessness. There were also human sacrifices, widespread intoxication, rape, and other sexual license consuming human-shaped biscuits, still produced in some English and most German bakeries during the Christmas season. Now, you want to get to the, a dark part of the, cons one of the darkest parts of this Christmas conspiracy, Christmas lights. Do you, do you put up Christmas lights, Maxwell, or have you in the past? Um, sometimes to light up a small room, like a vehicle, or... <laughs> <laughs> All right, check, or uh... this out. check this out. X is the 24th letter of the English alphabet. So this is... December, and if we relate this to December 24th, which is Christmas Eve or X Mass Eve, and another letter we can relate to Christmas is the letter Y, which is the 25th letter of the English alphabet. Christmas is the 25th. So we have X and Y representing the human chromosomes in human cells that just happen to be the 24th and the 25th letters, which just happen to coincide when we're talking about Christmas. Is that deep enough for you, Maxwell? <laughs> it's just funny coincidence. <laughs> Everything is a coincidence. Well, let's get to this. Is it a coincidence that the word chromosome comes from the Greek words chroma and soma. Chroma means color, soma means body. So the human, human DNA is made up of colors and frequency bands. Some people actually even call this human chakras. Some people even relate the word human. What is a human? H-U-E means a gradation or variety of color. What happens when you put hue and man together? H-U-E-M-A-N is a hue man. Some people also relate this to auras, where people's auras are a certain color or a gradation of a color. So what, what about Christmas lights? When you're putting up alternating lights, kind of like X and Y chromosomes, Symbolically, are you offering your X and Y chromosomes or DNA as gifts to the dark forces, to Satan and the demons? Symbology is one of the main proofs that people like to use in the Illuminati conspiracy theory and taking that even further, the demonic Illuminati conspiracy theory. What do you think, Maxwell? That's, that's interesting. Um... I don't know. That's kind of deep. <laughs> you want to hear another coincidence? Sure. Do you want to, you know, one of the one of the acronyms for GIFT? A GIFT acronym? G-I-F-T? Yeah. Gamete Intrafallopian Tube Transfer. 
gamete intrafallopian tube transfer, a process that involves removing a woman's eggs, mixing them with sperm, and immediately placing them into a fallopian tube. Okay. What a coincidence that that's a that's gift, right? G I F T. Yes, that's a coincidence. <laughs> Let's go back to the Christmas tree for a second. Does the Christmas tree represent the human spine and the tree of life? Now, the spine connects to your skull, so which of course is a dome that houses your pineal gland. You know all about your pineal gland, right, Maxwell? Well, uh. No, not really, but uh, I hear it's, uh, I don't know. What is it about? Some people call it your third eye. You can have a third eye awakening. It just gives you knowledge of truth and the universe and the current human diet and chemicals and all that results in the calcification of the pineal gland, basically rendering it useless and you becoming a zombie of your potential self. Ah, uh, I see. Easy to manipulate by the manipulators. So why are, so some people, again, in these crazy theories, they are saying that a pine tree is used to represent because of your pineal gland. And you put a star on top of the Christmas tree as kind of representing the kingdom of your body. Is your body for sale for gifts? So they just put the gifts under your body and you give up your body, your DNA. Your soul. Is this all part of the demonic, satanic Christmas conspiracy, Maxwell? Um, I don't know. I I think it's kind of weird because like, if people don't know about it, like it's probably more influential to both of us since we've learned this. I would argue yeah. the opposite because the subconscious mind is more powerful than the conscious mind. Well, what I'm saying, yeah, but don't they have to at least learn it subliminally somehow? Like, oh, well, I guess they have, like, just doing the act itself. Yes, that's well, according to the conspiracy theory. That's how it works. Yes, uh, it's weird. Like, uh, I uh, okay, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And they have different emotions towards it, which is more powerful, I guess, to those who like to those who uh, manufactured these behaviors. Well, and all of the all of these conspiracy theories are kind of hinged on the fact that your consent is required. So if you're not doing so it doesn't necessarily matter if your conscious mind is aware of this, because if your subconscious mind is aware of this, that's giving your consent. Whereas if you understand all of this and take the commercialism, once again, the 666 connection to Satan and Saturn, that's all a representation of physical reality and materialism. So if you take the materialism out of Christmas and you're left with only the good, and if you're just emanating love and kindness during the season and all of the year, I don't think you have too much to worry about. But some of these conspiracies are very, very dark, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's almost as bad as the, the Halloween episode we did. <laughs> yeah, but the Halloween episode, people were expecting the occult and darkness for that one. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, people people aren't expecting this one. <laughs> well, maybe some of them are. This is mind shock after all. Uh, also, the tree is made out of wood. If it's holy wood, holy wood is used for magic wands and doing magic or occult. And you're bringing that into your house and decorating it. <laughs> That was the most fun 
that was a that was a lot of fun growing up, like decorating the Christmas tree. It's kind of cool, like you get these little ornaments and just hang them. I don't know. It was kind of cool. It was fun. But I guess uh, I summoned demons and shit. <laughs> <laughs> so the recommendation from some of these occultists is to mostly not do the Christmas tree. Because <laughs> that's... Of all, of all the things? <laughs> well, yeah, because you're also... Because of the presence that you're putting under the tree, you're kind of offering symbolically your body, your DNA, your soul as the sacrifice in exchange for materialism. In, a chain, in exchange for physical gifts. So, once again, we hope you enjoyed another edition of the Mindshock Podcast. And we hope you do have a holly, jolly holiday season with family and friends. And it brings you much joy and happiness, regardless of how you choose to celebrate it. If you like our podcast, like the podcast, feel free to share it and link to it and the channel. And you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Leave any questions, comments, suggestions, and we will read all of them and get to all of them. we got a bunch of podcasts coming up. Make sure you check out our social media too, like our Facebook page. Also on Twitter, Reddit, and Patreon. This is Bruce McGuire. And Michael Pack. Wishing you a merry holiday season. Have a good one. (laughs)